Hi, once again, listeners. This is Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. We are a team of software engineering experts led by legendary author Steve McConnell. Here, we believe every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value. In these episodes, we talk with one of our consultants, exploring one of our different types of engagements. We describe the issues those engagements were designed to address and how we solve them. Today, we're going to discuss a topic that's in sync with the more effective Agile discussion that we've had on this podcast, uh, a number of episodes with Steve McConnell. But first, let us once again introduce the man himself. Welcome back, Steve. Thanks for having me back, Mark. So today's episode is going to focus on the very basis of Agile, um, its principles and values. Um, You recently gave a keynote at XP 2021 in which you said that they need to be updated. Why now? Well, uh, it's been 20 years uh, since the Snowbird Conference uh, that gave rise to the Agile Manifesto, and I think that's a good round number time to uh, take a look back and see what ground we've covered since then and think about how we might cover more ground going forward. Well, that's good clarity. Um, So given that backdrop, uh, why don't we start with a quick recap of Agile's beginnings, um, just to kind of wind back the clock and, and put some focus on that. What was happening in software development when people got together at that Snowbird Conference? Yeah, so going back to circa 2001, I like saying circa 2001 because whenever you say circa, it makes it sound like it was a long time ago, which (laughs) it was. Uh, So we had two things going on back in 2001. One was that uh, for decades, really the whole history of software development, the most common software development practice was code and fix. And so in a few years before circa 2001, we had the rise of something that was known as the software CMM or the software capability maturity model, uh, which was a government initiative, US government initiative to try to assess the capability of software vendors. It was a very government oriented uh, model. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was paperwork heavy. It was designed for large government projects and contracting environments. Uh, inexpert implementations of the software CMM uh, tended to be bureaucratic. And the whole thing was big enough that it was hard not to do it in a bureaucratic way. You had to get to a pretty advanced level in the CMM uh, to really be doing it efficiently. And the plain fact of the matter is that the software CMM was never intended for small projects. The projects the government was worried about were large projects. And so we had all this focus going into how to make large projects successful, and there wasn't much attention being paid to how to make small projects successful. In fact, you know, virtually any implementation of the software CMM would have been too bureaucratic for small projects, and most projects, in fact, are small projects. And so my interpretation at the time was that um, the Agile uh, Manifesto and the Snowbird Conference was really a reaction to this sole emphasis on large projects and was really all about, okay, well, that's fine, but what are the set of good practices that will make and values and principles that will help us be successful on smaller projects? Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, so Agile really was a reaction to um, something to being emphasized at that time with the CMM. What, what about now? How would you characterize Agile now? Well, it reminds me of that commercial where people become their parents. And I think that in some ways, Agile has become the thing that it was a reaction against, which is to say it has become, in my mind, bureaucratic and institutionalized, which really is kind of the essence of anti-Agile. My favorite example of this is the Scrum Guide. So 
The Scrum Guide has said for quite a few years now that, quote, the Scrum framework as outlined herein is immutable. Now, what does immutable mean? Immutable means not only that something is unchanging, it means that it can't be changed. And that statement was first announced in the Scrum Guide version two in 2011. And since 2011, we have had six more versions, six more changes to the supposedly immutable Scrum. And the, the lack of self-awareness on this point is just mind-blowing to me that for six different versions, we re-announced that Scrum is immutable. So, I mean, I don't know what, you're, what they mean by that. Are they saying the second version is immutable and if you change it, therefore it has to be the third version that's immutable? Really? Uh, now, some people are going to say, you know, Steve, you're being unfair. It says the Scrum framework is what's immutable. And the problem is that in the Scrum Guide, the Scrum Guide defines Scrum as the framework. It says, quote, Scrum is a light work framework. So the idea that we can somehow drive a wedge between the claim that Scrum is immutable and it's like, oh, it's the framework that's immutable, not Scrum. Basically, this is just an overblown hyperbolic statement that is really quite anti-Agile itself. Agile is all about improvement and the idea that we would have Scrum, which is the most, really the most popular practice associated with Agile, but we're not allowed to find ways to make it better or improve it, notwithstanding seven different versions of the Scrum Guide, uh, but, the, but we're supposed to believe that it's immutable. I think that's about the most anti-Agile concept I could think of, and yet it's right there in black and white in the official guide to the most popular Agile practice. So again, you know, Agile has become its parents. It has become the thing it was reacting against originally. Yeah. Sounds like you have some passion for that particular issue. <laughs> <laughs> I so, just think, you know, yeah, so I just crazy. think the gap between what the pundits are saying and what people are doing on the ground has been widening for years now. And as is often the case in engineering oriented disciplines, a lot of times, I mean, one of the differences between engineering and science is that in engineering, it's common for practice to uh, exceed theory or for practice to be ahead of theory and the theory and the academia have to catch up. And I think that's where we are with Agile today is uh, Agile's been evolving, but the pundit's explanation of Agile and in particular, the values and the principles uh, have not been advancing. So despite all that weirdness, right, of that, what's your feeling about Agile uh, and, and in particular about Scrum in this case? Is that something that you, you, you like Scrum? Is that? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, to be clear, I love Scrum. I think Scrum has been a huge game changer in software as a whole. I think it's arguably the single most valuable practice associated with Agile. It's just that this specific claim that Scrum is immutable is absurd. It lacks self-awareness and that claim itself is anti-agile. You know, Scrum's not immutable and it should not be immutable. My overall point is that agile practices really are not be static. They should not be static. Um, and then kind of segueing to the main uh, point of our talk today is that this undue fixation and reverence for these 20-year-old artifacts of uh, the agile values and principles really give rise to a, a non-practical and in essence non-agile viewpoint of agile itself so that's really the main thesis today right uh, and where you're coming from on this what's the basis of that perspective that you that that you think is happening here yeah so you know as we've discussed before uh in the prior podcast we were talking about my book more effective agile 
Uh, I went through a review process on that book that I think was probably, <laughs> arguably, the most elaborate review process anyone has ever done on a software book. Maybe like a, the next version of, you know, the C++ or Java or whatever, you know, language standard. There might have been as many people participating. But for a software development practice book, uh, of course, it was initially based on experience that my company, uh, Constructs, has had working with clients over the years on on Agile, uh, with Agile teams. But I sent the book out to uh, about 600 people for uh, review purposes. And I got comments back from about 325 of those uh, of those people. Uh, and that included uh, the people I was getting comments back from were, for the most part, uh, senior leaders in their organizations. They were directors, they were um, uh, VPs, and uh, so the vast majority were in those senior leader positions, about 75%. The thing that I think is cool about getting your work reviewed uh, is that reviewers don't tend to comment on things they don't care about. They only comment on the things that they know about and that they're passionate about. And as a result, you really get the benefit of their best thinking and their best experience. And in total, I got about 10,000 review comments on the book. I ended up delaying the publication three months because there were so many more valuable comments than I anticipated uh, that it really improved the final book. And the other thing I did, I think it did, is because there were so many people, you know, more than 300 senior leaders reviewing the book, I think that that review was extensive enough to essentially say that the book represented the state of the practice of Agile at the time it came out. And, and I would say the state of the practice in many ways even when the book came out a year and a half ago, was well beyond what uh, many of the pundits were talking about. Well, I think the fact that you got such a response, I think um, it's front of mind for many people. Right? I think it was a big issue to get out there. I mean, if I sent, as a sales director here at Construct, if I sent 100 emails and got 50 responses, I'd be ecstatic. So the <laughs> fact that you got 325 out of 600 is it's pretty phenomenal. I think it's it's really it shows a lot of interest in this subject matter. It says a lot of people have a lot of comments to say about it, right? Yep, yep. And there was lots of back and forth, and you know, lots of people were, you know, the interesting thing about it is I think there's this kind of like undercurrent with agile implementation that departs a little bit from sort of the surface level discussion of agile, where uh, you know, one of the the threads in these review comments was basically. Well, this is probably the wrong way to do it, but what my company is doing is this because it's the it's sure. better. And when you hear that from, you know, there was nothing I heard from all 325 uh, reviewers, but you know, when you hear the same kind of thing expressed in a similar kind of way from a couple dozen people, you start to think, oh, you know what? The actual state of the practice on this is not what the pundits are talking about. And and of course, at constructs, we had worked with companies. You know, we work more in depth, and we don't work with 300 at a time. You know, so we had our own kind of view of what was happening, but I think in terms of a you know broad survey of practices, it really did uh, give me an idea of what was going on. And I think, you know, to me it was just interesting that a lot of people out there feel like they're on an island implementing their own version of Agile, and nobody else is doing it similarly. But I think what I found is that there actually are lots of people doing it similarly, and in, in some ways, it's the pundits who are out of step, not the not the practice. Well said. So that's a good segue to, um, you know, with the, the idea of the state of the practice in mind, I think what we're going to do today is dive into and do a 2021 review of the Agile values and principles. Um, so we'll work with the, the values first and see where we go from there. 
So the first value reads like the following. Individuals and interactions over processes and tools. That's probably the one that most people quote when they talk about, about the manifesto is that particular one, right? That's, that's something that people almost use as a, as a stick now <laughs> and again. You know, it's, it's ironic to me because I actually think that's the one that Agile has been the least faithful to from the beginning. Uh, I mean, if you look at like the, the, uh, the typical scrum diagram of the two loops together, that's a process diagram. And then you look at even the Scrum Alliance, their logo is a version of those two loops. Their logo is a stylized version of a, a process flow. And so one of my complaints for years has been that Agile hasn't followed through on the promise to focus on individuals and interactions over processes and tools. And, you know, I just think this goes to the, the programmer mindset. You know, we, we like tools. Uh, we like technology and, you know, and we like knowing every detail about latest technology. So, uh, you know, <laughs> in DevOps in particular, we've just had this explosion of tools and there's this uh, pretty well publicized uh, periodic table of DevOps tools that has around 100 different tools on it. So clearly huge explosion of tools, definitely lots of focus on process as well. So I think you know where we are is Agile in 2021 focuses extensively on processes and tools. I think it was aspirational circa 2001. Uh, I think uh, the Agile movement never really followed through on trying to emphasize individuals and interactions, period. Uh, but it certainly has has dwelled extensively on processes and tools. So. Uh, you know, whatever it was doing in 2001, I don't think that statement meaningfully characterizes Agile today. Uh, it, it makes total sense. And, and I think that, that uh, you know, from my perspective, looking at the marketplace and seeing the plethora of tools out there, I think the ecosystem that sprung up to support Scrum, um, I think people just, it was like sharks in the water, right? There's enough, there's enough you know, bait for us in there to, to, for, to feed us all. So these, I think the tool vendors went crazy with support in different ways and different visions and different things they can do. And I'm sure that's how that principle got flipped a little bit, right? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, when I was at Microsoft a million years ago, one of the things I observed was that <clears throat> if you didn't have a tool to do it, people weren't going to do it. And so at the time, Microsoft was pretty good about putting tools in place that would just make it easier for people to do the job right because doing the job right was embedded in the tool somehow um, than it was to do it wrong. And, and so I don't think the way Agile has shaped up is wrong. I just think it's not, uh, it's not uh, accurately captured in that value statement. Well said. All right, let's try another one. Um, this one goes, working software over comprehensive documentation. Yeah, so, you know, this one is very much a statement that was, uh, I think, uh, reflective of the time at which the Agile Manifesto was written. You know, comprehensive documentation, <laughs> I think, was actually charitable. What they really meant was uh, <laughs> uh, overly ov overwhelming, crushing, pointless bureaucratic <laughs> documentation. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, that really is a reflection of its time. And I think today the more relevant contrast is really to uh, just-in-time practices, which really don't require as much documentation. They still require some, but not as much, versus big-batch upfront practices, which were the practices uh, that were prevalent back in 2001, and which, to do them well, do require more documentation. But I would say 
I see documentation as a side effect of batch size uh, rather than as the cause. And so, you know, if I was going to redo the values today, I think I would talk about large versus small batch size rather than uh, working software versus documentation. Well, I think that's a more meaningful distinction. It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, do you see any places where comprehensive documentation is still used? I mean, regardless of batch size? You know, I, I, I would probably push back a little bit on the comprehensive part of that. You know, we work with lots of companies in regulated industries where there are documentation requirements. And, you know, a lot of those companies have struggled with how do we do an agile implementation and simultaneously uh, meet the, uh, the documentation requirements. And, and we can't have it over. It can't be, uh, can't be we prefer working software over documentation because both parts are absolutely required. And so I think in my experience, agile peers don't like to talk about these instances because it breaks their notion that you that is possible to be 100 percent agile. But at least from Construx's perspective, these environments are commonplace and they can benefit from judicious use of agile practices. And so the agile purists are not doing the world any favors by trying to insist that in a regulated environment, you should find some way to just not do the documentation. That's just a non-starter, but it's fine in a hybrid approach. Uh, and we see, you know, we see extensive examples of hybrid agile waterfall implementations uh, where you know, the, the mission is really, OK, well, how do we how do we follow 2021 agile principles and values? Uh, in other words, you know, do small batch size, minimize waste, minimize work in progress uh, and uh, and keep the doc, you know, complete the documentation requirements, but minimize the bureaucracy associated with that. So I don't think any of that is captured in either the values or the principles from 2001. And certainly not this one value of working software over comprehensive documentation. Well, I think that's a perfect example of getting back to your immutable hammer. You know, <laughs> it, it, like it's just too much variation in the world of software out there. Absolutely. To, right. Yeah, yep. totally. All right. Here's the next one. Customer collaboration over contract negotiation. Um, I, I mean, at, at first blush, the thing certainly sounds good, but uh, this wasn't always a value, even pre-agile, right? Yeah, I think, you know. I uh, I had lots of opinion about the Agile Manifesto and the principles and values when when they came out, uh, and mostly these days I'm just trying to stay focused on what's changed. But yeah, that's one that I think was always a bit of a specious comparison. The idea that anyone other than the lawyers preferred contract negotiation over customer <laughs> collaboration, really? you know, you'd have to show me the environment uh, because I don't I never saw an environment where anybody preferred contract negotiation. Uh, you know, and I think as the years have gone by, that in some ways this has become an Achilles heel for Agile teams in that uh, <laughs> Agile says it's customer focused, but on the ground that plays out way too often as teams claiming they know what the customer wants without actually talking to them. Uh, and so really what I would like to see on this one is I think the real value should just be customer collaboration, full stop, not yeah. over anything else, just customer collaboration. I like that simplification. It's really, you know, I think that makes that makes perfect sense for that particular one. So here's the final value. We'll try this one. Responding to change over following a plan. But really operating without any planning is impossible, right? Yeah. So this is, I think, a good example of where 
the words meant something in 2001, and some people try to twist the words or spin them today to mean something different and say that it's always been there, but it really hasn't. I think back in 2001, it really did mean we are going to respond to change. We're not going to plan everything up front, and uh, it's more important to respond to change. But I think what the way Agile has shaped up over the last 20 years, and 20 years is a long time. We've learned a lot about how to do software better over the last 20 years. Uh, I think today the value would be better stated as something like deferring detailed planning to the last responsible moment over creating detailed plans up front. And so I think that, you know, that's one where I think we actually, the intent really was just to avoid planning back in 2001. Whereas now I think it really is more about deferring planning, doing it at the right time. Uh, it's not, le it really hasn't shaped up as less planning. It's just shaped up as planning done at a better, more useful, less wasteful time. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's in line with a lot of what we we talked to uh, with our clients. I mean, you certainly have detailed planning at a daily level. You have you know, and, and then you step out in time, and 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 there's certain levels that are appropriate for the time that you're doing them at, right? Yep, yep. And I think you know, I think that uh, again, the, the the original statement of this was kind of a time capsule, and it was a response to the bureaucratic implementations of the CMM. And so, you know, it was, I think, a reaction in some cases to heavy-handed, inexpert, crude implementations of the CMM, where the inexpert implementations were slavishly following a plan uh, and, uh, and, or I should say, mindlessly following a plan and not changing it when the plan clearly was out of, out of step with reality or over time became out of step with reality. Uh, so, you know, I think this was... Uh, you know, this was a reaction to what was going on at the time, but I, I don't think it reflects, uh, agile today. That's, that's completely in line with what I've seen out there in the market. And, and I think it makes total sense. So, so that's, those are the values. How would you sum up the state of the agile values today? If you had to just put it in a simple, simple phrase or phrasing. Well, I would say that uh, I would say 20 years later, the circa 2001 Agile values are quite out of date and they really do not reflect Agile as it is practiced today. And, and that's just not criticizing for the sake of argument. You, you just went a long way towards a more relevant formulation of them. I mean, given our experiences with Agile transformations here at Constructs with clients in recent years, to me, this all rings completely true. I mean, from my experience, it's just a ground state conversations with with clients. So let, let's switch gears here. Yeah, if I can, if I can jump in on that just for a You're moment. You're loud, Steve. I'll always let you jump in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I would say, you know, the revisions I'm talking about, I think are more true to the essence of Agile than the original statement of Agile was. And the idea that we're going to do 20 years of implementation of agile practices and not learn anything well that's quite a depressing idea uh, and the reality is we have learned quite a bit about how to uh, better express uh, or better understand agile and and better implement it and I guess the irony of this is that you know in the in the, I can't remember if it's the preamble or the postamble of the agile manifesto but you know there's a comment that we are discovering better ways of doing software that's right. Discovering. It wasn't done in 2001. It's been a continuing process. And so uh, and so, you know, I think we are in a position now to make some uh, more valuable statements uh, based on the benefit of 
applying these ideas for the last 20 years. Inspect and adapt. What a great phrase. <laughs> yeah, somebody ought to name a podcast that. They should. They really should. So, so let's switch gears. Uh, let's do the same thing with the principles, the Agile principles. Um, so here's the first one we'll talk about with, with regards to the principles, and there's quite a few of them. Our yeah, highest priority... Our highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery of valuable software. Lots of words. Break that down for us. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, in going through the principles, I would say the Achilles heel of the principles is that they're just overly specific. A lot of times we can just remove a few words and we still have a valid principle. And this is one of those cases. Um, our highest priority is to satisfy the customer. That's good enough right there. Our highest Period. priority is to satisfy the customer. Uh, this part about through early and continuous delivery, yeah, maybe. It depends on the customer. Um, I think there are lots of customers that that's appropriate for, and there are some customers that it's not. Uh, you know, we have large enterprise customers that really don't want continuous delivery of stable software or any kind of software. Uh, <laughs> they can't cons they can't absorb it that fast. And so, uh, you know, and we also have software in embedded environments and safety-critical environments and uh, you know, the medical space and uh, so on that can benefit from agile practices to some degree, but that do not want continuous delivery of valuable software. So, uh, you know, this is the first, I think, of a few examples where the principle is good, but it's overly specific. And if we can prune out some of the over specifics, then we've still got a good principle. Yeah, no, so to some extent, you know, just putting a period after our highest priorities to satisfy the customer makes that thing, you know, relatively easy to change. Yep. That makes sense. All right, let's try another one. Welcome changing requirements, even late in development. Agile processes harness change for the customer's competitive advantage. Is that one still in play? You know, I think this is a really interesting one because this is a great example of how uh, the people who were who were writing these principles 20 years ago. And for that matter, the industry as a whole didn't have the expertise to write down what this has shaped up to today. And so back then the idea was we don't want to be rigid. We want to welcome changing requirements. But the way this has shaped up over time is that, yeah, we still welcome changing requirements. But in 2021, that's become the backup plan. And the primary emphasis now is avoiding doing things that will need to be changed. And that goes back to the big batch versus small batch idea. And you know, what we've learned in the last 20 years is that big batches uh, deteriorate quickly or uh, spoil quickly. And we're going to have to throw stuff away when we do things in big batches. So we do things in smaller batches. We complete all the work related to that batch. And so we don't have the changes and we avoid making the changes. So the, the ideas of the whole idea of product backlog and backlog refinement, uh, picking off the work for the backlog very shortly before the, the team actually does the work in the backlog. These are all practices that are really aimed at avoiding the need to uh, welcome changing requirements because we're not really pinning them down until the last responsible moment. So, um, you know, I think this is one where uh, the principle was a good aspiration for its day, but we have learned that a better answer is possible. Well, I think that's, you know, that's a good summary. I think it almost seems like um, responding to change to help the customer has, has fallen by the wayside in practical application of this principle, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the customer doesn't want waste either. 
And uh, and if we have to, you know, anytime we're changing something we already did, there's some waste implied there. And I think the spirit of saying we want to be responsive to the customer is still completely valid. Uh, but the implementation of it, of saying, yeah, our emphasis is just on changing things we already did. You know, no, that's not where we are today. You know, so I think this is another place where hybrid agile practices come up. A good example here is story mapping, which is just an incredibly powerful practice that I think most people think is agile, but it does uh, address requirements challenges uh, in a different way than this value would imply. You know, it's really more of a hybrid practice that intelligently blends some upfront work, uh, upfront prevention work with a lot of just-in-time work that really minimizes the need to change requirements later. Yeah, I, I, as you're talking here, I'm thinking about this notion of rework, right? And there's there's some things that people generally will do in an environment. Maybe there's conscious rework and an unconscious rework. And if you t have, t have too much specification of requirements that are too large in a batch size, I think it, that, that, that does affect your rework percentage in your projects, which is a big deal for, for people, right? It should be. Yeah, I think you know, rework is a really interesting way to look at it because I don't think Agile has in any way changed the value of avoiding rework. But I think what it has done is to say, you know, in the old days, if we planned everything up front and then you discovered a requirement was wrong, then you know, some teams would go beat the customer over the head and say, oh, you gave us the wrong requirement. It's your fault. You said and, it was immutable. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, and so and so teams would avoid rework by not doing rework they should be doing. Uh, and I think that's what the Agile principle circa 2001 was responding to was, you know, trying to push back on doing rework that really was needed. But now this is a better way to avoid rework. We avoid it by just not doing it wrong in the first place. And, uh, you know, and so I think that's better. Cool. So the next principle um, deliver working software frequently from a couple of weeks to a couple of months with a preference to the shorter time scale. <laughs> yeah. You know, again, in terms of these uh, principles uh, being a bit of a time capsule, uh, this is outdated to an almost comical degree at a time when companies like Amazon are delivering hundreds or thousands of times a day. Uh, you know, I think the principle of this spirit is intact. Deliver working software frequently. Yeah, you know, but this is another example where we should just cut off the second half of the statement. Deliver working software frequently, period. So, but you have like with a preference to shorter timescales, isn't that always been an issue of people thinking about trying to make things shorter? Or is that you still object to that piece too? Well, I think when you say deliver working software frequently, then you've already said implied with a preference to a shorter timescale. Um, you know, okay. Yeah. I think in my, my reading of the principle was that the shorter time scale referred to the contrast between weeks and months. Right. Um, right. But we're, we're clearly not saying that we're going to try to favor weeks at this point in time. I mean, lots of scrum teams are still on a you know two week cadence, but, um, you know, there are lots of environments where they're delivering software way more frequently than that. Gotcha. All right, got a few more principles to get through, so let's keep this rolling here. How about business people and developers must work together daily through the project? Wow, huh? Well, you know, okay, so this is another kind of dusty principle that uh, when we dust it off and really look at it, 
you know, does not account for all the ways that we've learned over the last 20 years about how to collaborate between business people and developers. And I think the specifics of this statement saying business people and developers working together and daily kind of ignores all the learnings, especially around the product owner role. And I think that, you know, we've learned that it's useful to have a person who's the point person, the product owner, uh, who handles the bulk of interfacing with the customer. Beyond that, I think in a lot of ways, this principle describes a disaster scenario. If you actually have business people going direct to developers and giving them requirements, you know, one-on-one, that's exactly not what we want to have in most environments. So, you know, in most environments, that's a recipe for just randomizing development, uh, throwing any kind of prioritization out the window. And, you know, so, so no, we don't want this as exactly stated. I think, um, I think, uh, you know, the idea that in some way, shape or form, we want to have a high level of collaboration between the business and the technical staff. Absolutely. We definitely need that. But, you know, this is yet another example where the principle is just overly specific. And I think that makes a lot of sense. In my personal history, having been a in a software managerial position, supporting my developers, and then, and then later in my career being in sales, I completely understand the tendency of a business person to go find that guy that always did something good for me, sneak into the back of his cubicle and say, hey, can you work this in? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's really, you know, that's the essence of some of this stuff that really is problematic. And I think it still happens on a large scale today. People still oh, yeah. have those issues. Oh, right? Yeah. right. I mean, the sociology of software development is part of what has kept the field interesting to me for so long. And, you know, the friendships or adversarial relationships within the team and from the team to the business definitely affect how effective the team is. And and a lot of business people figure out that if they can be friendly to the software folks, they will get some things done that they otherwise couldn't get done. And, you know, considered in isolation, that's not a bad idea. Having a good relationship is a good idea. But, you know, when you look at the effect it has on overall uh, throughput, it's not really the best way to get a lot of work done. Right. Totally agree. So over specificity seems like um, so far in these principles seems to be a consistent trend here. Um, and evolution of actual practices, uh, so much that maybe even the principles actually out of date. So let's let's try another, see if how that fits against that lens. Build projects around motivated individuals, give them the environment and support they need, and trust them to get the job done. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, so this is one where I'm kind of sticking my finger down the back of my throat. Um, I just, this is just such management 101. Uh, it just kind of makes me cringe. It's like, okay, yeah, let's see how many management platitudes we can cram into one statement all at the same time. <laughs> so, yeah, I think this one's still valid, but um, kind of obvious, kind of management 101 doesn't have a whole lot to do with software. Right. Uh, we we talked about uh, when we did the podcast for more effective agile, you, you, refer, you certainly referenced Daniel Pink's autonomy master and purpose as yep. things that an agile team needs to be highly functioning. Um, and I think it's a directive towards the type of leadership that's necessary in that environment would, I mean, this would be another way you could talk about this environment and support needed as opposed to that long principle, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if, if we want to cast it in terms of autonomy, mastery, and purpose, this statement is about the autonomy piece of that, but the principle is, 
has something to do with autonomy. It's not the detail of environment and support and trust and motivation. And again, it's just, there's a lot of stuff crammed into the statement and it's, I don't think it's really a principle. It's a, you know, it's either multiple principles that are all incompletely stated or just kind of a, a mishmash statement. I don't, you know, I would just strike this one completely if I were going <laughs> to rewrite the principles. All right. Not that the concepts aren't important, but you know, we're not going to put every concept that's important from every field into a statement of agile principles. And I think if we open the door to that one, then we've got, you know, dozens of other kind of platitudinous uh, uh, statements that we would need to put in. And it, ironically, it expands. So, right. So the next principle, the most efficient and effective method of conveying information to and within a development team is face to face conversation. Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, I think this is the most interesting one we're talking about today, just because if we were having this conversation two years ago, I would have said, yeah, this principle is still valid. But wow, you know, the world has changed a lot in the last two years in terms of uh, virtual communication and teams learning how to work together uh, over Teams or Zoom. And so, you know, today, after the experience of, of uh, the long stay at home process in 2020 and the first part of 2021, I think the jury's out on this one. You know, I would have I would have agreed on this one before, but um, you know, I just don't know at this point. So maybe it doesn't doesn't explicitly say three D face to face communication. <laughs> so maybe two D was is is a way to think about it. Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. so you know, agile aside, I definitely still think there's value in people getting together in three D. Wow, is that a nerdy comment or what? <laughs> uh, um, would you yeah, expect any different? People can get together IRL in 3D. Uh, I think that's, uh, you know, at least some of the time, I think that's a big positive. But yeah, like you said, face-to-face maybe, uh, you know, if I think there's a big difference, and this is going into the platitude territory, but, you know, if you've had time to develop the interpersonal relationship with someone and kind of learn to read their body language and their nonverbal cues through in-person interaction then I think that buys you some latitude to have the video interactions. If you never have done that in the first place, then, you know, I think there's more opportunity for miscommunication when you do get to the point that you're, or if you only have ever had uh, 2D interactions. And, you know, there are exceptions to that. Everybody could point to somebody that they had a good relationship with from the start through a pure online relationship. But um, um, anyway, yeah. So I think, anyway, overall, I think this one's still a work in progress. Okay. Or the jury's out. So moving on, another one, working software is the primary measure of progress. Yeah. So, you know, this is kind of another one I think is actually kind of interesting in that this one actually speaks to a tension that I think is still present in 2021. Uh, You know, I think in one sense, this was back in 2001, this was a reaction to the bureaucratic paperwork and so on that was Uh, common, more common then. Uh, But I think in another sense, this speaks to a dynamic that we still see on agile projects today, which is a tendency uh, to value activity over progress. And, you know, it's really easy to convince yourself that you're being, quote, productive because you're working on some sort of process related thing or tool related thing that you have a reason to believe will speed you up in the long term. But Um, You know, but if the work never actually gets done, then that's not actually productive. And, uh, 
And so I think I think this one is still alive and well today. I think you know the the details are definitely different now than they were 20 years ago. Um, but this is one that I would keep uh, as written. Okay. When I remember a guy years ago wrote this wrote this article in an IEEE publication about this idea of cargo cult software, <laughs> all the all sort of the trappings of a process, but really no progress, and just looked like activity towards something, but not not towards a goal. And maybe that's appropriate <laughs> here too. I don't know. Remember that guy? <laughs> yeah, I think I might know that guy a little bit. Um, so that guy also wrote a book called Code Complete, and one of the things he learned when he was writing that book was that. You know, writing a book is is similar to writing software, but the difference is that the amount you have done is in some sense more visible than it is in software. In software, you can spend a long time getting a bit of functionality just right, and you can't really say, well, how big is this bit of functionality? Whereas with a book, you've got a page count. And sure. one of the lessons I learned the hard way on Code Complete was that if I spent the day, like, you know, organizing my research or, uh, you know, reformatting my document, at the end of the day, I didn't have more pages. And if I did that for two or three or four days, I still didn't have any more pages. And you get to the point where you have to accept that. You know, if you don't actually write the words down on paper, you're not making progress. <laughs> and you can talk to yourself all you want about getting more productive. But if there aren't more pages at the end of the day, then you haven't actually done anything. And I think this is something software people struggle with, which is we tend to like elegant solutions. We tend to like, you know, clever solutions. We tend to avoid brute force. And there are a lot of things in software where you just need to power through it and get it done. And people can procrastinate for weeks on stuff like that. And I think practices like daily standup have helped with that. But, um, you know, we still have this tendency to um, avoid work that we don't want to do. And, uh, uh, I learned a long time ago that the best thing to do with work you don't want to do is do it quickly so that you can move on to something you do want to do. And it's Tear off always the been ironic to me that people drag out the tasks they don't like and then rush through the tasks they do like. That seems kind of backwards. Sure. It's like rip the bandaid off. So, so one word in that, in that principle, I, I guess I think about is the notion of working software, right? That's kind of a key to that is, do we do Do we all define that the same way? Is that, <laughs> is that one of these things that, cause you were talking about yeah. like, like embellishing things and playing with things and making them perfect at some point in time, working software is no longer an image there, right? It's you've. So I don't know the exact history on that, but if we go back to 2001, you know, now I think, uh, you know, continuous integration is so common. People may not even under be able to understand what it was like in 2001. And um, but in 2001, the idea of even a daily build was still not uh, by no means universal practice. It really wasn't common. Um, I think I published the first article on Microsoft's daily build process, and that was around 2000. So um, so I think back then when people talked about you know, developing software, a lot of it was like writing code, have, having different individuals writing code on a team that didn't necessarily actually get integrated for a long time. And so you could accumulate code that you'd written, but you didn't know that it worked. And a lot of times, even if it worked in your local build, you hadn't integrated it with other people's code and then it wouldn't work when you integrated it. And so what you thought you had done, you hadn't actually done. And so I think, you know, the idea of knowing what working software was, was, was a very different challenge in 2001 than it is now, you know, and now uh, I think, I mean, I think a lot of people who started programming in the last 10 years 
would look at the description of practices in 2001 and the way that software was developed by individuals and then integrated after after a time. And they would just say, that looks completely irrational. Why would anybody ever do it that way? And, and I do think, to me, what that says is just, we have in fact discovered a much better way to do that part of the job uh, than was in common practice in 2001. Sure. You know, you and I are old enough, we'll probably think about this as someone saying, yeah, my dad used to do software like that. <laughs> or my mom, right? So, yeah, or oh, yeah, grandfather great. at this point. <laughs> All right. The next principle says agile processes promote sustainable development. The sponsors, developers, and users should be able to maintain a constant pace indefinitely. There's your favorite word again, that there's that immutable, right? Yeah. So this statement, I mean, you know, number one, we have the word processes as the second word. So, you know, I thought we were supposed to be preferring individuals interactions. Um, Although, you know, maybe we give a pass because, you know, the thing is about sustainable sustainability. But the specifics of a constant pace, what does constant mean? It means unchanging. And, you know, does anybody ever actually develop software at an unchanging pace indefinitely? No. You know, personally, I've always done my best work in burst mode. I don't prefer working at a steady pace. I prefer working hard for a while and then not working for a while. And so I think, you know, this is one of many examples where the spirit of the principle is valid, uh, but the wording is overly specific. And, and also it's not stated as a principle. Agile processes promote sustainable development. That's stated as uh, an observation rather than as a principle. So it really should be agile processes should promote sustainable development or agile, agile processes uh, should emphasize sustainability or something like that. You know, and then the rest of it, I think, should just be cut out. All right. Yeah, man, that, that seems like a simple um, simplification that makes a lot of sense. Okay, four more principles. Uh, how about this one? Continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. Yeah, so, you know, again, this is one where I think uh, the spirit of this, I think, is alive and well. But it's not 100% clear to me that five different people would all agree on what the spirit of this statement is. I think the idea that you want to maintain attention to technical excellence all the time is alive and well, and that's baked into agile agile practices and agile processes today. Um, you know, we don't have the idea anymore that we're just kind of get, going to get sloppy for a month at a time, and then we're going to clean everything up at the end of the month or two months or three months. So, you know, the idea that we're going to do that on a we're going to clean everything up on a continuous basis and keep the quality at a constantly high level keep the technical excellence at a high level. That idea, not only is it alive and well, I think it has been articulated in all kinds of useful ways over the last 20 years. Uh, but this last part about good design enhances agility, I think that has proved to be ambiguous. The phrase has proved to be ambiguous, and I think it has uh, caused, caused some problems, and especially on larger projects. You know, Keeping in mind that I think Agile initially was aimed at small projects, we had phrases like you ain't going to need it and big design up front or BDUF used as a derogatory phrase. Do the simplest thing that will work, basically meaning do the simplest thing that will work now. Uh, right. Kind of implied that every system can be grown uh, over time. And, you know, there are definitely environments where that's true and where that's a really reasonable approach. 
but I think this is another place where the hybrid agile concept comes into play, which is that there are also environments where putting some attention on design upfront uh, actually matters. And, you know, we still want to do the least amount of upfront work that uh, can responsibly be done. Yeah, I mean, you talk about upfront design on a big system. That's yeah, different. It's, that's certainly different than a small system, right? right. That, that mm-hmm. there's some requirements to want to do something like that. I mean, design certainly has been a challenge for a lot of teams, right? When to do it, how much to do it. Um, so I think this is, you know, this is a is an interesting conversation, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think the the key point here is really going back to the concept of hybrid agile. That in this particular area, especially the topic of design. I think this is where the hybrid concept is not just useful, but it's necessary. You know, the right amount of upfront design varies whether you have a large system or a small system. It varies on whether you have a safety critical system or a business system. And I think Agile erred in the beginning by deprecating upfront design. I think the emphasis on or the 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 deprecation of meaningless documentation about upfront design was appropriate, but the idea that you're just going to ignore design up front, I think, was kind of based on the fact that some of the people who wrote these principles and values were just incredibly expert designers and could basically design their way out of any problem they ever got themselves into. And mostly, I think this represents a lack of self-awareness because, you know, they didn't realize that not everybody else is as good as they are. And so some people actually need the guidance that you get from a little bit more design work upfront because they can't actually design their way out of every single problem they, they design themselves into. So I think, you know, what we've seen on the ground is that lots and lots of teams have had the good sense uh, to use a hybrid approach and to do a little bit more design upfront. And I think this is one where uh, reality on the ground departed from the stated principle earlier rather than later. We were seeing teams making intelligent adaptations or exceptions to this principle, you know, 15 years ago. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's all really a good um, summary of the particulars of where we are with that. Um, and, and to some extent, some of that actually seems like it almost contradicts the next principle, which is um, the following simplicity, the art of maximizing the amount of work not done is essential. I mean, I, I like this one. I think it's it makes a lot of sense to me. But how, how does it relate to the agile, the hybrid agile considerations you were just talking about? Well, I think you know it's interesting because I like this statement too, um, but I, I think it's kind of vague. Uh, you know, I think this actually is a nice counterpoint to the one about welcoming changing requirements. Uh, when we talk about talk about the art of maximizing the amount of work not done, if we want to interpret this as promoting a focus on just-in-time planning, just-in-time requirements, just-in-time design, so that we don't do a lot of work ahead that then we later throw away, then, you know, I like that. But I would prefer a more direct statement rather than this kind of roundabout statement. I mean, this is one of those that's, you know, it's pretty clear that these different principles were written by different people. There's a different voice in the different principles. And this is one that I think is uh, you know, striving for some elegance in the statement, but I think uh, is a little bit out of the spirit of the others. And I would prefer to see a more direct statement. Okay. I mean, one, one of the words that, that sticks out in my mind in that principle is this, is using the word art. And, 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 you know, you think about all of these different principles and all the different values, and this is the only one where the word art appears in it. 
I mean, and is it really an art to balance building the right amount of value that can be achieved in a given sprint? I mean, I'm, I'm sort of being rhetorical on this, but you know, you don't, aren't there tools for just something like that? I mean, it just seems like that's the case, right? I, yeah, the word art is a is a bit of a puzzling word in this one. I think uh, uh, I I think you can, uh, and, and also just the phrasing of maximizing the amount of work not done. How about just saying minimizing the amount of work done? You know, we basically got a double negative in there. Uh, no, I don't. I don't know that that requires art. I think it's. I think it actually requires discipline more than art. Uh, so, you know, the discipline of minimizing the amount of work done. Um, so yeah, again, the, the detailed wording, I think there's something in this that is still present in agile 2021. Uh, but, uh, I think we could, we could definitely improve this specific statement. Yeah. I, I think, you know, you know, I've talked about this before. I think our, our friend Jeff Patton has stated this principle in another way. And he says, minimize output but maximize outcome. In other words, higher value features that the customer wants versus just a big bag of features that they get that don't necessarily mean that they have the same relevance when they were asked for originally, right? Yeah, you know, at the feature level, I, I uh, or at the functionality level, I like that statement. At the design level, the coding level, I don't like that statement. Um, okay, okay. You know, I think, I think at the coding level, the idea that you're going to, Minimize output, but maximize outcome in coding would encourage people to write overly elegant cryptic code that is hard or impossible for other people to understand. So, yeah, I don't I don't like that as a general statement. Okay, that's that's good feedback. All right. This next one's not simple. The best architectures, requirements and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. (laughs) Uh, so this is one where I'm not going to try to constrain myself to what's <laughs> changed over the last 20 years. I think I think this statement is is wrong. Um, I think that it's not stated as a principle, and it doesn't have anything to do with agile, really. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, this is a uh, you know I think architectures and designs. Uh, I would apply Conway's law here, the idea that the structure of the system reflects the structure of the human organization that built it. So self-organizing teams imply a certain kind of architecture uh, per Conway's law. Is that always best? Absolutely not. It depends on what you're building. You know, in some circumstances, it might be best, but in a lot of circumstances, it's definitely not. Um, Self-organizing teams producing the best requirements. I don't see see what self-organizing has to do with requirements. Uh, You know, one of the, one of the lessons we learned with agile is this structure that we have around a product owner. Well, when you say that we're going to adopt the scrum team structure, including product owner, is that self-organizing? You know, are we going to let the the client side self-organize and then our self-organizing side will interface with their (laughs) self-organizing side and let the chips fall where they may. No, I think that's ridiculous. So I, I think this this whole thing, it's not even a principle. It's an assertion. It asserts that the best architectures, requirements, and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. I think it's a highly questionable statement. I think you could say, you know, per our earlier conversation about Daniel Pink and autonomy, mastery, and purpose, you know, we could say that self-organizing teams have the highest sense of autonomy, mastery, and purpose and therefore tend to have the highest motivation and productivity. We could say something like that, 
But then we're still not at the level of a principle. We're still at the level of just, you know, an assertion. It's albeit an assertion I think is more defensible. But no, this one is uh, unlike some of the others that are overly specific. I I think this one's just wrong. I'm going to stop you there before you take your shoe off and start banging it on the table. <laughs> I'm very close. <laughs> I am untied, uh, so it's good that you uh, you did that. <laughs> All right. So we've reached the last principle. I feel like Karnak now. I have in my hand the last envelope. Okay. All ahead. right. We've reached the last one, and that is at regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more effective, then tunes and adjusts its behavior accordingly. Yeah. So this is a good one to end on. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've I've worked on a lot of committees that write language, and this really reads like compromise language written by a committee. You know, I think any notion of doing this frequently is missing from this statement. Regular intervals. What does regular mean? It means, you know, periodic intervals. It could be a day, a week, a month, a year. You know, plan, do, check, act, plan, do, check, act process in a waterfall environment would satisfy this principle as written. And I think anytime you find something that is characteristically waterfall that would fully satisfy one of the agile principles, something here is missing. So, you know, I think the spirit here of reflecting on how to become more effective and then tuning and adjusting is terrific. You know, we need that. That is an, an essential part of agile development. My biggest complaint about this principle is how about applying this principle to the agile principles and values themselves? You know, this regular interval 20 years great for idea. applying this to the agile principles and values. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so like I said, this is a good one to end on. Uh, and uh, it's, it's unfortunate that we've gone 20 years without regular at regular intervals, uh, 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 figuring out how the principles and values can become more effective and then tuning and adjusting them uh, appropriately. Well, there's some, you know, I think you even talk about it in, in, in your talk, but you know, there are elements of agile that are really actually missing from the prior principles that are out there today. You know, can, are there some examples you can give me of that? Well, yeah, I, I think there actually are some fairly significant omissions here. Uh, we've talked about, I think one of the big categories, which is this idea of high-level upfront planning combined with uh, detailed just-in-time planning. Similarly, the idea of high-level upfront requirements or stories or epics with uh, detailed just-in-time uh, requirements or stories. Uh, you know, conspicuously missing from any of these is the idea of continuous testing. Uh, I think that's or any sort of continuous quality assurance unless we're going to stretch that statement about continuous attention to technical excellence to mean continuous testing, it's just, it's nowhere to be found. Uh, and then I think very significantly, the idea of limiting work in progress, there is just nothing unless we want to stretch that simplicity one. But, you know, that is an enormous stretch to stretch the simplicity one to say that, oh yeah, that really meant limiting whip. Yeah, no, I don't think it did. Um, so, yeah, so I think those are learnings over the last 20 years, some big ones, I think, that stand out to me. Um, and uh, any, any type of revision that actually brought the principles and values into line with good Agile as it's practiced today, uh, I think would, uh, you know, would need to cover those. I, you know, some people are going to listen to my comments here and say, oh, yeah, but, you know, the simplicity principle covers this or that. 
you know, I would acknowledge it's possible to stretch one or more of these values or the principles to cover the points I just mentioned. But I think what that's really doing is saying is saying that these points don't contradict the circa 2001 principles and values. It's not really saying that uh, that the 2001 principles and values actually anticipated this stuff. And I think, you know, stepping back a little bit, there's also the question of why would anyone want to stretch the language to cover these updates? And I think the reason is because there's this misplaced reverence for the 20-year-old principles and values. And reverence is not a business concept and it's not an engineering concept. Uh, I think the lack of willingness to uh, to learn from our experience and reflect that learning in revisions to these principles and values has been holding Agile back for quite a while now. Wow, great summary. Uh, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Why don't you, um, as we close out here, why don't you summarize your thoughts on on just the topic in general? Um, you know, w- what's your thoughts on the entire on this entire discussion? Yeah. Well, you know, I think I think it's pretty easy to read the 2001 values and principles in a way that says the spirit of most of them is alive and well. Uh, but I, I think that a lot of the specific details are out of date. And really, if I had to characterize it overall, I would say I would say the spirit is alive and well. The principles and values largely suffer from being overly specific and the specifics just not keeping up with the times. Uh, I think agile practice has moved beyond circa 2001, um, I think it would be a useful thing to try to update the principles and values uh, to better reflect uh, agile practice on the ground today. You know, I think some of your comments today, certainly um, it, it, you've done some of that work, actually. And so w- what about the principles in, in more effective agile that you wrote? I mean, we described those in this podcast. Is there anything else from the things that you had written about in that that might be that might be appropriate to update here and to talk about? Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, I think this selection of, of points, <laughs> you know, I have a math background, so I kind of, sometimes I think about things in terms of, uh, you know, fully filled out, filled out matrix versus a sparse matrix. I think, you know, any statement of agile principles and values is going to end up being a sparse matrix. And I think the specific items that have been selected in that sparse, in that uh, sparse matrix, you know, it's it's kind of hard to characterize those as a spanning set. And uh, I would, you know, I would probably go through and engineer the set of things I included differently, uh, which is in fact what I did do in more effective agile. And you know, like one thing that's missing in the statement of uh, of the principles and values is the idea of developing a growth mindset. And so, to me, I think that would be one thing I would really emphasize in my sparse matrix of agile principles and values, you know, you could kind of say it's implied by that last principle, but, you know, at most it's faintly implied. It's not stated directly. And I think growth mindset is really key to a lot of other good uh, agile uh, practices. You know, if you have a mindset where you're just constantly in a learning mode, constantly trying to figure out how could I do this better but but the orientation is paying attention to what happened on the ground uh, and learning from that. You know, an awful lot of the other good things in Agile can be inferred from that. And then I think hand in hand in hand with that is the idea of inspect and adapt. And uh, again, I think if you are really take the the idea of inspect and adapt to heart, you're going to 
find your way to a lot of the other agile uh, principles and values just from uh, diligently applying inspect and adapt. So, you know, I'm not going to say everything in agile can be inferred from growth mindset and, and inspect and adapt, but an awful lot of the core can be. So I would like, like to see those expressed more directly. Makes sense. You know, you mentioned the spanning set. You sent a shiver up my spine because the linear linear algebra, I think, from my standpoint, engineering education was one of the scariest courses I took. I just that I got lost in the trying to image that in my head. So you know, <laughs> I love linear algebra. I'm sure you do. So seriously, what would be involved in in truly updating the values and principles? Is there a, a Snowbird Two conference that makes sense here? What what mechanically what makes sense to you in your head? You know, I think that's a terrific question, and that this goes back to what we talked about at the very beginning, which is Agile basically becoming the thing that it was originally against. I think, I think a Snowbird Two conference would be, in essence, kind of <laughs> Agile becoming the thing it was against. And and I think basically what you've had over the last twenty years is a lot of the people who are involved got themselves set up as consultants. They made a name for themselves doing Agile uh, and so on. And so they're, they have some entrenched interest in kind of keeping things the way they are or having their own spin on things. You know, it was kind of remarkable in the first place that these folks got together and agreed on uh, on things that had as much clarity as, as they did. That in itself, I think, was an accomplishment even at the time. I would be quite pessimistic that, that a group of people 20 years later would be able to do the same thing. So... You know, from my vantage point, the original Agile Manifesto came about because a group of outsiders, if you will, saw a need that wasn't getting addressed by the institution. Uh, you know, so basically the institution was focusing on large projects. The outsiders uh, at the time saw a need to focus on small, low overhead projects. And from my point of view today, I think the need that isn't getting recognized by the institution, and now the institution is Agile, uh, are all the scenarios where hybrid approaches are needed. So I think a successor to the Agile Manifesto is more likely to come out of left field somewhere. I think it would be more revolutionary than evolutionary uh, and will focus on, basically focus on the deficiencies of Agile. And that has to come from people who have a keen awareness of the deficiencies of Agile. And you know, if if the thing that supplants Agile comes out of left field somewhere, I think that would be a proper homage to the Agile origin story. You know, it'd be, it would be fit, fitting for Agile to be undone in a manner similar to how it came to be in the first place. Left field, left coast, you know, something like that. Never, never know where it might originate. Right. Never know. Seems to me like, like um, we've mentioned this term a number of times today, this notion of hybrid Agile. So maybe, maybe we should come back together again and talk a little bit about a podcast that's just focused on this term hybrid Agile. Would, would you be interested in coming back to talk yep. about that? Of course. Yes, of course. And as you know, the, the usual fees will apply. Wow. Uh, which uh, probably is in the form of uh, something inside a big metal refrigerated barrel. <laughs> yeah, you're on. You're on to something now. I think you speak my language. All right, sir. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for this great conversation. Uh, I, I think your insights here are just phenomenal. I learned a lot, and, and I'm sure our listeners will find this really quite interesting. Thanks for having me. Cool. So be sure to tune in again for another episode of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as your host. 
Liz Ostaszewski has been our audio engineer, and Devin Musgrave is our fearless producer and in-house yurt expert. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you normally would find us. If you have ideas for a future podcast or comments on this one, or you'd like to talk to one of our practitioners about this or other topics, reach out to us via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. And we'd love to hear from you. And for the last 16 months of the COVID environment, um, as your host, I've been kind of keeping the same message in uh, in my closing here. We uh, here in the U.S. have held it together pretty well, and we're largely seeing a gradual return to normalcy from, from the pandemic. For others around the world, I will continue to say for now, keep saying safe out there, everyone, and have a great next sprint. Mm-hmm.